Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing, what is this, like our ninth year now of conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I can't believe I'm, I've almost been doing this for 10 years. And, you know, when I get interviewed by people, one of the inevitable things, you know, when you write about technology and you write about uh, trends is people ask you about the future. You know, they go, oh, what do you think is going to happen? I, used, I always hated these, these questions because... I'm not much of a futurist in the sense of, of, of really like deciding to have my spiel. I actually distrust the way a lot of people talk about the future uh, because it's usually a kind of in, invitation for their own shtick and their own sort of uh, spin on things. Uh, I prefer to keep a mind open to the, uh, to the possibilities. But I can promise you one thing, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Without doubt, without question, this year will be weird. And it's oh, it's not saying much, really, actually. But but and it's weird for me, partly because my book High Weirdness will come out in in um, April May, and so it's going to be a weird one for me, just because I'll be talking a lot about the weird, and I develop a whole idea of what the weird is. It's not just uh, you know strange uh, fantasy stories by H.P. Lovecraft. It's a whole way of looking at at the paranormal, at looking at extraordinary, impossible experience. Uh, and it comes out of a whole of uh, my dissertation that uh, I did at Rice University under Jeffrey Kripal. Um, and so that's part of the reason it's going to be weird for me. But I, I can just, I think that's just a fair assessment uh, of what lies ahead. And my approach to that, that weirdness is to allow things to become a little bit weirder in my own approach. You know, I, uh, I, I've always respected scholarship. I respect skepticism. I respect critical distance, questioning, uh, and I'll never stop being a questioner as part of my uh, inquiry. Uh, but there's also ways to do that that are tighter and looser. Uh, and there's also ways to approach the, the art of conversation, the art of suggestion, the art of possibility. And it's a fine line. Uh, in my book, I developed this idea of, of the tightrope walker, which is where you're, you're able to sort of uh, uh, kind of cross over very strange possibilities, paranoid possibilities, speculative possibilities, um, you know, entity phenomena, all the kind of host of of oddities that we talk about in, in this show, along with other things. We don't just talk about the paranormal here. Uh, but there's a certain attitude, a certain way of keeping balance, a kind of negative capability that allows you to stay awake and open, uh, but also not really um, falling into either uh, a kind of typical skepticism or or the sort of resolutions of easy uh, belief. And I think this attitude is a very important one to have as we go forward and the amount of... Um, uh, brainwash that comes our way, uh, algorithmic manipulation, uh, f fake news, and then our own weird experiences and thoughts and re research and how we integrate them. Uh, so I'll be I'll be sort of trying to hone in on uh, this kind of the mind of uh, the weird explorer uh, as uh, the year progresses. So it's a, a wonderful way to start off uh, this year uh, talking to uh, Diana Pasolka. Uh, she's the author of the new book, American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, and Technology, which is already receiving deserved praise, not just from uh, fringe dwellers like me and a lot of you, 
but also people, which also includes my, my listeners, I'm happy to say, who are interested in these things, but not necessarily already uh, particularly well-versed in matters, UFO and uh, uh, strange phenomena and such. Um, and she does that because she, she uh, approaches this material in a very open, uh, accessible, thoughtful questioning and critically informed way that I would say, like my own work in, in a different way, is informed by our um, mutual friendship uh, and, and peer relationship with Jeffrey Kripal, who sort of within academia really uh, blazed a sort of trail of a way to approach um, the, what I would call the weird or the paranormal or the, the supernormal or the impossible is what he calls it uh, sometimes. Uh, uh, where you, you bring your critical skills to bear, uh, you keep asking the kinds of questions that humanities people uh, can't help st uh, asking, uh, and yet you remain sort of rigorously open uh, to possibility, even to possibilities that pull the rug out from under your own uh, presuppositions. And it's a, it's a, it's a, f a style that uh, I think is uh, very helpful at this time, in, in history, because I do think things are getting weirder, not just because they're actually getting weirder, but because as consensus reality uh, begins to sort of uh, fragment, melt down, uh, enter a, a labyrinth of mirrors, uh, there's just more room for this stuff, uh, which means uh, that the, the skills and the intelligence and the camaraderie among people who are uh, investigating these things and keeping each other sane as well as turning each other on to uh, the impossible, I think, is a really key element. And I consider Diana a peer in this um, effort. And I was uh, happy to, to read early on in her book, uh, we're, we discuss, she discusses a, um, a gathering of humanities, uh, mostly humanities folks who were interested in UFO phenomena, and some of them were pretty skeptical, and some of them were pretty open-eyed, and there were some other characters there from from U the more UFO side of things, uh, including one of the people who ends up appearing in uh, her book. And I was at that uh, gathering, so it was really interesting to see uh, her take on it, and also uh, the the wonderful work that kind of came out of. Uh, her one of her discoveries at that conference, and and really maybe that's where we can I can finally bring her on and we can start talking, um, is this uh, the existence of a, a world of uh, people who are technically sophisticated, scientifically sophisticated, working in industry, very successful in their fields, who also have an interest in the phenomena and are not interested in entering the the sort of meme spray of the internet and all of the kind of hustles around ancient phenomena that pop media, uh, ancient aliens and other strange phenomena that pop media like uh, to, to foment. And so it's a, it's a kind of hidden world within an already weird world um, that she really ran with the football. So with that, Diana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Eric. It's great to talk with you again. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun, you know. I, I, there's so many uh, elements. You know, each. I, I kind of when we started your book, you know, I went through the first couple of chapters, and I thought we were going to kind of stay in the universe uh, of Tyler and James. And while they come back, uh, especially at the end of the book, and there's a nice shape of it, it, you really do a lot of stuff in a in a short, accessible framework. So it's it's I, I quite admire that having written a, a much longer book that perhaps doesn't even have as many perspectives in it. Uh, I really uh, I, I admire that uh, that that work there. So it's a little hard to figure out where to start. But let's start with 
uh, these two kind of main characters, uh, Tyler, Tyler, and James. And again, it's you, you, you really make a strong distinction that I think is so important uh, between the sort of general pop media universe of discourse around the UFO and related uh, paranormal phenomenon, which is fomented by internet videos and uh, you know video sites and YouTube and uh, a kind of hot house. Uh, zone of self-promoters and hucksters and deluded people and fascinated people and obsessive and fans and all that whole stuff, which I think probably most of us listening have at least dipped our toes into, a a distinction between that world and this other world that Tyler and James kind of open you up to. How how would you characterize this this other world that you were trying to to bring forward and investigate in in your work? Right. So at that conference... I came, I mean, all of us did. So you were, you and I, by the way, I really enjoy speaking to people who have been trained like me in religious studies and know Jeff Kripal and read his work and are influenced by him because um, I think that we're well equipped to study the weird and we're well equipped to study the weird because we don't actually have to buy it right we don't have to believe it but we can be completely engulfed and influenced by it and so um you know it takes it takes a few years to develop that skill so i've enjoyed interviews by people who are you know who have had that training and um so and i think that this kind of um information and this type of you know going into the the weird or going into the paranormal is actually something that needs to be done and is required. Uh, you know, Jacques Vallée did it in the 60s and the 70s, and he didn't have training in religious studies. I think that if you just, you know, you have a certain mindset, um, uh, you develop the skills. So uh, that So that's definitely something that needs to be said you know we study the weird in religious studies we study stuff i mean look what i've studied i've studied the purg you know purgatory purgatory is this weird place that you know catholics kind of don't even know about anymore but for many many years they did devotions to souls in purgatory and you know how do you study that do you believe in it you know do you you know so so people who study religion study mystical phenomena they study you know saints they study people who've seen what they think are angels and things like that. So um, it's not really a stretch to go into studying this culture of ufology, but also people who engage with what Jacques Vallée calls the phenomena. And I like to call it that too, because um, the people, Tyler James are both scientists um, who I met and there were other scientists who were very much like them. And so um, you're absolutely correct that they're not on the radar mostly of they're they are not ufologists they don't call themselves ufologists they're not involved in pop ufology uh tyler more specifically and more than any other person i met he actually engages in the study of this professionally so he engages in the study of this and he has he he stays off social media stays off the internet uh is you know develops technologies that impact our lives inspired by what he believes to be alien technology so what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with the myth right of prometheus you know that we you know you've got this this link to non-human intelligence and it's giving you information about technology and here he's actually creating these technologies so 
but you have the myth, but you also have the reality that this guy is actually doing this. So that intrigued me. And so I spent a good many years um, basically uh, hanging around with them. You know, we went to New Mexico. Uh, I got to see their labs, you know, what they were doing. And, um, and it, it, at that particular conference that we were at, I also recognized this is like, it, this was eye-opening for me because I realized that this group of people, the code that they um, are guided by, you know, the code that, of ethics for them is absolutely opposite of the code of ethics for you and I. So you and I were trained, you know, in, in academic ethics, which you show your sources, you're transparent, you talk about what you've learned. And if you do that in their culture, uh, you don't work. So what happened was, you know, um, the organizers, I was one of the organizers of the conference, um, were very naive thinking that we could bring these two cultures together, mix them together and have it go swimmingly well, right? Well, what happened were a series of very strange, tense moments. And I realized what those tense moments were about. They were about the clashing of the ethics of the, these cultures. So you have on the one hand, you don't talk about what you know. In fact, that's why I used the uh, pseudonym Tyler, Tyler D, right? What's the first rule of Fight Club? Don't talk about Fight Club. So that you, you just don't talk about what you study. Whereas for you and I, that's all we do. We talk about what we study. So that was the first huge revelation that I made was that if I continue with this type of study into this culture, which is a new form of religiosity, a new form of religion, then I'm going to have to play by their rules and or else I'm I won't know anything. So and I also have to understand how do I play by their rules, but keep to be, you know, keep to my own rules as well. Yeah, I mean, that was a that was a remarkable thing about there was another event that you also kind of uh, allude to in, in, in your book uh, that happened at that conference where one participant accused the other person of saying things that he shouldn't have said because that material was stuff that they both knew, but was had they had both learned under a certain kind of cover of secrecy. Yeah. And so you realize it's not even just that there are things that you don't talk about. There are these levels and games that of, of how, who gets to say and under what circumstances. And essentially, you, you know, you, even though the, the material itself might not have to do with national security, you're entering into an espionage kind of framework. And that's one of the fascinating things about studying ufology in, 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 in any way, really. But it means it, it, you can't go in any direction without hitting up against this problem of secrets. Who do you know? Information disinformation and so for me it's even as it's also it at, at, on the one hand it is very much a new religion in a number of very rich ways not just in a facile way that people have some belief in supernatural entities but that it actually involves you know affect it involves these artifacts that you talk about that are that function like relics i mean there's a lot of ways you can talk about it but at the same time it's also this strange portal into what i think of as kind of post-war power, the way that power and knowledge operate in an environment where, you know, espionage, secrecies, and what uh, the CIA 
uh, Honcho uh, uh, Angleton once referred to as the wilderness of mirrors. And you enter into this wilderness of mirrors. And then as a humanities person, in a way, you realize that you can't pretend to be objective in the way that that ethics of, of, of scholarship kind of want you want to be you want to be able to hold a sort of uh you know kind of a, a ground that's that's not too stained by the things that you're talking about but there's no way out i mean once you're in the thing you're hearing the story and you're in the loop and there's stuff you can say and you can't say and and it gets you know it gets weirder than that so it, it how was it for you to to navigate that where how did you how did you learn how to navigate with these people who, who in some ways didn't want you to, to say that much about, or at least the details of what they were doing. Right. So what's really interesting is that that's one of the te- the subtexts of my book is that if you think, if you go online and you type in UFO and you think that you're getting it, you're not, because there is a lot of stuff going on, but it's not stuff that the public is going to figure out, you know, and I know that's going to make a lot of people very unhappy. Okay, and but I mean, I just have to report what I can say, you know, I've seen. Um, So there's that. Um, On the other hand, what I was doing was I was what my meta idea was for this book was basically saying that the environment of technology with which we find ourselves in now, with which we are implicated and are a part, um, will absolutely create a new religiosity. It just will. And it has. And the best example of it is this, you know, the the belief in non-human advanced entities, either from other planets, other dimensions, what have you. Um, This is, it's, I mean, so many people believe this already. So here we are, uh, and it's the environment of technology. I mean, um, during the Protestant Reformation, I, I went back to other religions to kind of show how that when technology changes, it changed changed with Plato. You know, it changed the way in which people lived. Uh, the Protestant Reformation with the Gutenberg Bible and the printing press absolutely changed religion to something completely different. Of course, it's going to happen to us now. So I wanted to examine how uh this was was happening okay so that was the big picture of what i was trying to do i had no idea that what i would get into was the that i my own beliefs about the topic would be challenged now in my field in religious studies you don't have to come down on the truth claims of whether or not non-intelligent ETs exist or whatnot. You don't have to say yes or no. You just basically study the people who believe it, or you're with the people who believe it, and you you write about what they believe. Well, here you had people who were were completely successful academics um, at the top of their game, um, people who were absolutely successful entrepreneurs who also worked for the space industry. And they were, they believed wholeheartedly that they were using UFO artifacts to create technologies. And, you know, that was quite something for me to, (laughs) to understand with respect to what it, what this new religiosity means. This new type of belief is not just a belief in the sacred relics of the, the, you know, the, um, the, the things, the artifacts themselves, right? It was also turning these things into technologies that 
actually, Eric, you and I use on a daily basis, whether or not they these are real things, you know, that they say they claim to be, it doesn't matter. Their patents are real. You know, the inspiration has created these real things. So that type of transformational, almost incarnational aspect to it uh, was something that I had to wrap my head around. And that was probably the most difficult. Now, also playing by their rules. Um, the deeper I got into doing the research, uh, doing the book, the more I realized that if I said certain things, I could get people in a, a lot of trouble. And no way was I going to do that. So, uh, uh, you know, another thing that could make a lot of people angry, you know, oh, no, it's your job as an academic to say this. Well, no, not of us going to get somebody, you know, put in jail. So there, you know, I think that within this culture of people who study this, uh, they, you know, it's not controversial nor a big surprise to say that there are programs where people take oaths and they're in, you know, they have to have oaths of secrecy. They can't talk. You know, there's classified classified programs. We know the word classified. It's, it's theirs for a reason. Um, and so that that I've not been given any classified information, but I know people who do have. And so you know, if they say, please don't say this or, you know, don't say that, I'm not going to say that. Now, yeah, I had to make that decision. You know, if I was going to write this book, I had to make the decision to, to incorporate some of their rules into the rules that I was taught as an academic. And I don't know how it's going to play out, but that's what I did. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, one of the things that happened to me, it was really uh pleasant reading your your accounts of, of Tyler and, and James and, and James was at the conference and I remember uh, you know him and, and, and found it very intriguing uh, person who had a had a, a very materialist aspect of his view of these encounters of the phenomena even though he also included some you know plenty of room for the far out but he was look, talking about how it runs in families so maybe there's something in the DNA and we can start you know you know doing family history as a way to understand what what allows our body minds to tune into these dimensions or, or whatever and it was you know kind of flipped out I didn't talk to him too much at the conference but when I read about it or when I read your account I were I was reminded of somebody I knew in the 90s when I first moved out of San Francisco, who will remain nameless. Uh, and, you know, I didn't become super good friends with him, but he was like this really kooky guy who was kind of around the scene, like the kind of rave, psychedelic world. And, um, you know, and uh, he was he was an odd bird. And, you know, I couldn't quite tell. He had a kind of air of mystery and around him, but he was very successful in some technological entrepreneurial endeavors, so kind of like the guys you're, you're talking to. And then... Uh, one day, for whatever reason, he, he kind of told me his story, and he was like an undergrad at, at Berkeley, and and then like something happened, and then like he was like, and then the story emerged that like as it went forward, it became more and more kind of you know mythic, non you know paranormal, surreal, whatever you want to call it, that involved like being shown these sort of underground labyrinths and the university at Berkeley and finding these secrets and you know getting kind of inducted into these internal knowledges. Uh, and it was a very interesting thing. It was kind of spooky and kind of strange and, you know, not dissimilar, in some ways not dissimilar from other people I have I have met who go on, um, you know, describing their experiences or something that, that set of synchronicities that have happened to them where my, you know, kind of my gut tells me that while they're describing their experience, they're also sort of 
you know, a little bit deluded or they're kind of telling a story or whatever. And I got to, partly I got that feeling from this guy. But there was another part of it that was kind of, there, there's something different. Like, even if we just take a really, like, down-to-earth thing and say, well, okay, great, there's guys like James and Taylor. They're, they're brilliant. They make technologies. They have wacky ideas. There's wacky people everywhere who have, like, crazy experiences. And if you ask them what they're about, they have these elaborate theories that are kind of unsubstantial. And so they, they, so what, you know, it doesn't really tell us anything about, it doesn't make the phenomena any more, any more real. I mean, an, an example that I would, that I would say here, not to say that he didn't have experiences or, uh, that, that weren't, um, was not to say that he was deluded or making things up, but I met uh, Joe Firmage, who I did a profile and he was a, you know, a big tech uh, player in the 1990s, and he had an encounter experience and became kind of messianic about it, and and it began to impact his work because he really wanted to get the word out, and he had some very uh, you know kind of apocalyptic ideas of what was just going to happen around the corner, and it ended up really you know impacting his his career, and so that was kind of like an off move. But the thing that I think that that your book pointed out to me is that is that even if you we just think about it that way, there are these worlds within the government, within the, the, the espionage world, within the technology world, within the democratic you know, national convention, you know, we know from Podesta that there are these inner circuits of people, of believers who are in all of these elite realms of power. And they have their own way of kind of mo- modifying information and building their own worldviews and sort of their own inspiration. So it's not just, you know, the 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 farmer who has the experience out in the field and whatever it's not even just the 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 pilots you know like all the incredible number of you know very well trained very you know rational strong-willed uh uh characters who have these kinds of experiences but that it's very deeply spread in elite culture and it has its own flavor um that does this does this is this resonating with you? Is ringing yeah. Oh no, it does. Yeah. In fact, I just wrote something down. Um, okay. So, okay. So, if you look at the history of what I've written about, this this is definitely different than that. So, I've written a lot about Catholic history, and um, never in what I have written and published. And, you know, in, in, I even did m- much ethnography, you know, uh, being around people who are very Catholic, traditionalist Catholics, stuff like that. Never have any of these people met with the men in black, quote unquote, the men in black. But the people, Tyler, James, each had their own, quote unquote, and I put that in quotes because I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, men in black experience. And so who are these men in black, right? So James told me about the men in black that came to his house. I write about it in the chapter on James. And at first he thinks he's being punked, right? Because he's like, what the, you know, what's going on here? And it turns out that these guys, you know, they're there to find out what James knows and they want to recruit James. Okay. And so um, this never happens. So that's why I'm saying that this type of um, research was way different than the previous research that I had ever done in religious studies. So it definitely took, uh, <laughs> it, t- it stretched me. I, I really needed 
the help of colleagues to think through how I write about this culture that you're talking about, because this is a real culture. Um, so yeah, so James meets these men in black, recognizes that this is something he's, he can't believe like, you know, he at first is very intimidated by them. They're quite intimidating. And then he realizes, you know what? Um, yeah, I'm going to do this. This is really interesting. And I've wanted to do this my whole life. And so um, same thing happens to Tyler. Tyler leaves the space program for a while because he make you know, he makes his, he does a lot of the, uh, his uh, biotech corporations and um, patents and things like that. And then he's walking through an airport and the men in black come to him and they basically say, we want you to work here. Call this number if you're interested. And so he waits about a week and then he decides to call the number and he finds out that, yeah, he actually does want to do that. That's what he wants to do. So, it, you know, you write about it. I mean, you just spoke about it as like this initiation, this initiatory type of um, another thing that people in religion and religious studies understand, you know, that there's this type of initiation. And um, Tyler has told me before, you know what? Um, you're, you, you're, in, you don't even know what's happening. And all of a sudden, about a year later, you're like, dang, I'm, I'm in this program. And I, you know, I've heard about it and now I'm actually in it. There's no, he says, you don't get a card, you know, you don't get, you know, you don't get a plaque that says you are now in this program. You know, you're in the program because everyone, you know, is in the program, but what pull, what keeps that program going though, Eric is the silence is the invisibility is the code of not of that what i call the fight club code right first rule of fight club that's why i use fight club as and i also by the way synchronicities we can talk about that too um the synchronicity of, of fight club i mean there were so many strange synchronicities about it um that i knew that that was the correct way to spin this these cultures um and I subsequently, by the way, have um, one of the men in black uh, got in touch with me. And um, then I realized who he was. And I asked him, I said, are you that guy? And he said, I, yeah, that's me. And I said, and in my mind, I was like, wow, I wrote about this person. And this person just described that event and exactly how I wrote about it. So I, it was, I felt somewhat vindicated um, that I had written about it correctly. Well, another point you make on on this point, let's 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 we'll earmark synchronicity, um, is uh, when you talk about Edgar Mitchell, who who showed up at our conference on a video conferencing and, and spoke to us for an hour and a half or so, and I found that encounter very peculiar. Uh, I didn't really put my finger on it, and I think you did a much better job of, or you did a great job of articulating what was just kind of an amorphous sense to me, where I was like. Oh, what is this guy? Where is he coming from? Where? What's his? What's his angle? Like, what kind of world do these guys live in? Because it's sort of like, even if they're not all billionaires, it's kind of like the way we think about, like, you know, what is it really like to like be a, you know, a multi-billionaire on our planet right now, and no other multi-billionaires, and you go to these conferences and you're talking to other. I mean, you, in some ways you're just a normal human, and in other ways you're. It's just a very. It's just such a different reality you're living with. And in a way, I think some of these people who are operating at the heart of power, whether it's financial power, technological power, you know, 
military, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's just a, there's some different rules that begin to apply. Things get kind of, in a weird way, kind of magical because there there's it's a lot about these interiors and these initiations and these circles within circles. And one of the things you write about in your book, which was, I, 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 um, I almost wish you had developed a little bit more, was when you talked about listening to Edgar Mitchell, of course, NASA astronaut, has a mystical experience coming back from the moon, um, ends up, you know, it turns out later was even doing some psychic experiments in space. He's into the paranormal and he founds uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So he's part of that kind of what you might think of as the new age intellectual mafia that are, emerges in the 1970s and ends up having a very powerful force throughout American culture, but particularly in California and particularly in the technology industry. But when he was talking, he just used language in a funny way. And he pulled out, he you're did, like, yeah. you're like, wow, there's, it's like, there's another world where they have their own kind of jargon and it's sort they of do. globalist yeah, and kind yep. of some, it's, uh, it's technological, it's kind of new age, but it's not just like, a you know, the sort of typical books you'd find. What, what do you think about that? What, that, what, what, what were the, th- yeah. the ways that he, that he got you thinking about this question of, Right. That's really, yeah, that's a good question. So um, that was such an interesting interaction. So there we have Edgar Mitchell, right? And everybody wants to ask him a question. And um, we all have one question. And I know, I know, I mean, I've, I've read a lot about him, right? And so I was, I knew exactly what I wanted to ask him. And um, what I noticed about him, and this is what I noticed about Tyler and about a lot of the people who were involved in this type of culture, was that they had a way of talking. I mean, certain phrases would repeat so many times. You know, when you talk to somebody who's a post-structuralist, and you know they're a post-structuralist because they're ta- they're using that jargon, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you know what they've read. You know who they've you know talked. You know, they're they're in that kind of genre. Well, something along the same lines was happening here where I identified there was a a certain lexicon. There was a language that they were using. I wasn't, I didn't understand it. I didn't know it, but they used the same language for the same types of things. So he had, he was, he had this language. And so, um, so I identify him. That's why I call my book, by the way, American cosmic, because there is a tradition of this group, this culture, and it's an ongoing tradition. Um, and so, you know, I think that we need, like, you know, the Russian cosmists. Um, in fact, I, it, my title is like an homage to the, to the book called The Russian Cosmists by George Young. And um, he identifies this tradition within the Russian space program. And I thought, you know, nobody's really identified this tradition here in ours. And here we have this man, you know, who's unfortunately since passed away, who was on the moon, did psychic experiments in space, was, I found out, part of the SRI, you know, the Stanford Research Institute. And he was using this language. And I thought, well, he's one of them. He's one of the you know, yeah. people who are the cosmos, right? So, um, you, you know, so- I just want to interrupt with an interesting thing. I, I actually haven't read. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to him in just a couple of weeks, so I'm I'm looking forward to reading his book. But I read a short piece on Medium from uh, Douglas Rushkoff. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Kind yes, of. Yes, I am. Yeah. yeah. So, and apparently, in his new book, he he makes the claim, which I it seems pretty pretty. You know, somebody who's spent a lot of time studying the stuff, we'd have to get Kripal's opinion on this. But he makes the claim that. Um, one of the things that happened when the Russians came to Esalen 
in the, in the in the late seventies and eighties, which you know arguably played a not insignificant role in in fomenting Glasnost. I mean, it was a very important event. It had it had strong you know it was stuff went down in that those those meetings with like you know Russian scientists hanging out in the hot tubs with all of these you know uh, sort of whatever you know uh, uh, consciousness expanders in uh, in, right. in Esalen. But one of the things that Ru- that Rushkoff claims, and he has a ultimately a kind of a negative take on it, although he he also participated in these worlds, um, was that some cosmist ideas that were kept alive and and sort of fused with transhumanism um, were, 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 were kind of brought back into the sort of, uh, you know, groovy, mystical, uh, psychedelic consciousness expanding Esalen types. And they started to kind of become more and more interested in like technological trans... Uh, uh, humanist and immortality projects, partly because of that contact, so that the the example of the Russian cosmism is maybe not just a, in parallel; that it's actually partly it's that con- right. connection. Because that once you're once you're in Esalen, you are also only once you're only one step away from SRI and what was happening in SRI. Right. I mean, it you know it all gets very weird. You know, something happened well, and all that stuff, and you know. Uh, we're, you know, in a way, we're also talking about Jacques Vallée without talking about Jacques Vallée. There's so many things yeah. to talk about. Anyway, so let's let's just uh, stay with yeah. that. That that's fascinating. I know. didn't know that. Thanks yeah. for telling me. I mean, yes, I'm absolutely convinced that that's probably true. You know, and it's funny because it starts to, you know, if you go down certain realms in in conspiracy theory, or even just certain ways that that uh, right wingers think about, you know, globalism or liberalism or the, the sort of uh, technology is a kind of a conspiracy to sort of destroy moral values and create these new transhumanist worlds or whatever. You're like, it's not like I think that's what's happening the way they think it's happening, but there are things that they're pointing to that you're like, well, yeah, there did seem to be some kind of awareness or decision or imagination about the future that, that was like, its future is going to be very different and if we're going to be able to like manage this future or be in this future or or rule or, or succeed in this future technology networking globalism maybe the melt- breakdown of consensus reality maybe the introduction of technologies that if they are not from outer space are so you know disrupt so paradigm disrupting that they might as well be from outer space that the only way we're going to handle this is if there's some kind of galactic myth there's some kind of notion that's either human transhumanism or alien transhumanism or something like that and that's why we're when we're talking about all these these myths it's not just about like pop media it's also about some kind of there's a big there's like larger storytellers that are that are going on and it's 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 very difficult to figure out what's 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 going on. How did you keep yourself from spinning out into darker or more paranoid or more conspiratorial manipulative kinds of visions which is of course you know a lot of ufology can go in that direction both the pop media and some of the real researchers other people don't do that as much how, how did you manage the kind of the sort of deeper darker implication aspect of it or or maybe it didn't come up as much 
No, no, it definitely came up. I mean, there was a, in the beginning, there was a point where I just had to say, this is just way too weird for me and I'm out. Right. And um, I'm going to go write a book about this John England, who's this Bishop in, um, in the, in the Carolinas, you know, in, in, in the uh, 1800s. And I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. And then um, of course, right when I make that decision, it's around my birthday time and I'm having a birthday and it's not the best and it's at night and I'm doing some of my work and I get a, an email from my chair who says, Hey, Hey, someone is just donating this giant library to you. And uh, she wants you to have it because she's, she's dying. She has cancer. And I'm like, wow, that's really sweet and kind, you know? And I'm thinking that it's a, ca- a library of Catholic things, right? Well, it turns out to be, and I've never met this woman. It was Brenda Densler, who's by the way, still alive. Thank goodness. Um, but she donated her UFO library to me and she wrote the lure of the edge. Um, and she was, has a PhD from Duke in religious studies. And so she gave me this gigantic library of stuff that I just went through it. And I was like, Oh gosh, I really do have to continue this research. So how did I do that? You know, I have to tell you, Eric, that, you know, I have, you know, I have a lot of kids. I have five kids. They're pretty young. Um, I'm the chair of my department and I can't spin out. I mean, <laughs> you know, hey, 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 Diana, just, Diana, uh, Diana, you, are you, I just lost you for a minute. So like, just pick up that, like, right where you're like, uh, I have to, it's like, start off talking about, I have five kids. Yeah. Okay. So I've got five kids fairly young, you know, they're, uh, I, the oldest is 15 and, um, my department, um, so I'm pretty busy and I have to say that my, my daily life, um, I can't spin out, right? But there's, I, I just can't. So I can't go off on the more negative, you know, I think that the life I lead is actually helpful. Really weird stuff because I can study the stuff, have my mind blown and then go home and have to cook dinner. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I have to do those kinds of things that keep me really, really grounded because I can't afford not to. And um, and that's probably, I mean, if I didn't have those things, I probably would, you know, I don't know. It would be more weird than it is. Well, but you, it's pretty weird already, I have to say. Yeah, it almost seems uh, when you talk about, uh, you know, balancing the weird as you're doing this project, that it reminds me that... that um, scholarship and study and um, bringing those tools to bear a combination of anthropology of historical knowledge uh, of critical thinking of uh, sociology all of those sensitivity to to religious patterns that those skills are it's not just that they're useful to try to understand the phenomena they're useful because they help you navigate the phenomena and I think Again, I mentioned Jacques Vallée. It it sort of feels like his approach is kind of, you know, hovering over this conversation because, as you said, even though he didn't study religion or isn't trained in in, the, in that kind of work, the way in which he recognizes that dimension of uh, of the phenomena seems to be a real key to other researchers in terms of the kinds of things you need to to think about. So, what what do you think? are the skills or the, 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 the benefits that come out of having that kind of training in, in religious studies? 
looking at this stuff? Yeah, I think that the I think that religious studies is and which Jacques was doing, and I don't think he well obviously he didn't know he was doing that, but um, you know he's like an honorary member of religious studies in my opinion. Um, so I mean, he basically at his talk at the UN, he basically said regardless of, of the objective reality of the phenomena, whether or not it actually exists, it actually doesn't matter because look at how many people believe in it. Look at how many UFO religions there are. And so it's a societal movement and it's only going to increase and it is worth our time to study. Now that said, of course, he believes in a phenomena, right? But he said that one does not have to believe in it and I think it was John Keel who said belief is um, the enemy, right? So don't don't believe, but approach. And that's really what we're trained to do in religious studies. Now, there are branches of religious studies where, you know, like the philosophy of religion in which we, we do discuss the objective reality of things, right? However, in, you know, in our training, we're trained to um, bracket, I guess you could say, you know, um, whether or not there's an objectively this this non-human intelligence or whether or not there's this, you know, thing, phenomena. We do say people experience these things and that's real. OK, uh, so I so these are the skills that we need when we go into studying this, because I think what happens is a lot of people say that they normal people, they have a sighting, um, they experience uh, really odd things. And they, they kind of, you know, they go on to the internet and, and they Google, you know, UFO or something like that. And they, they believe what they read. They don't know, you know, that, that there are a lot of books out there. There are a lot of things out there. So they don't, you know, or else they go to their MUFON chapter and they, they, you know, they talk to the people there. They maybe post their experience in the MUFON database. And so I think that, that is where we get the mythology of the UFO, you know, is that you have, it's not examined in any kind of systematic way. And, and that's where, where, the, where the mythology begins. Well, it's, it's also, I mean, one of the things I, I talk about in, in High Weirdness is uh, this sort of looping effect. And I know Kripal talks about that some too, or, or when you start to think about the the role that writing and books and the information that you're getting from your culture sort of feedback within the phenomena, you know, and then, and it's, that's where things start to get absurd. And it's not simply that you're reading something and you have expectations. And so when you have a weird experience, your expectations conform with what you've read, which is the typical materialist reductionist psychologizing approach to this kind of stuff. It's weirder than that. <laughs> yes, know, it is. It's absolutely. You definitely. Know, and one of the things you talk about along that line, which I really liked, is this idea of the book encounter. What, what, what's the book encounter? Right. So the book encounter is what I call it. Um, Arthur Kessler called, I mean, a lot of people talked about it. Carl Jung has talked about it. Arthur Kessler has talked about it in terms of, um, you know, it's this, a lot of people experience it. So you have, you know, Carrie Mullis, the novelist in chemistry, talked about it as well. You have this question, you're studying something, it's occupying your mind, you want to know about it, and all of a sudden you randomly pick up a book and you open it up and boom, there's your answer. 
and or um, it could it doesn't have to be a book it could be a movie you're watching or I have a friend who ha- the meme the correct meme is always there for him right so you know it's this thing that reinforces the what you want to know and so every one of the people that I feature in my book have had these encounters now this goes into what we call synchronicity and so what I have found in all the years that I've studied religion and it doesn't matter which religion we're talking about. It could even be California New Age religion, and you find this a lot. And that's the kind of milieu I grew up in. I mean, I'm culturally Catholic, but I grew up in California, Northern California. My parents were Catholic, kind of New Agey. So, you know, um, yeah, so synchronicity. So people experience in every religion, synchronicity is the engine of religion. So, you know, you, you feel, wow, I've had this very impactful, important, profound synchronicity, it means this. And so they then, you know, they, they think that they're on the right path or, you know, the synchronicity gives them some type of meaning. They interpret this, the synchronicity. And so what I found in the UFO culture with uh, the scientists as well as the non-scientists was that you've got synchronicities everywhere, particularly within this thing called the book encounter. Now I've had book encounters. I have them all the time. Okay. So what does it mean? Um, Nietzsche, the philosopher, describes uh, an encounter, you know, kind of like a book encounter he also had. And my weird book encounter happened with Nietzsche, you know, his uh, uh, some of his aphorisms in the gay si- science. By the way, on in the New Year's Eve uh, era, which were, you know, today's Oh, that's January. a good point. That's your, your yeah. story. <laughs> I got to say that this that's one of my favorite parts of the book, not only because it's a good book synchronicity. A lot of my synchronicities have been through text or, or, or books or happenstance with, with research. But uh, it's just a beautiful passage, too. And I never thought of Nietzsche having anything to say about recurrence or weird synchronicity kind of things. He, of course, he doesn't use the term. But that was taking place uh, around New Year's. So, yeah, it's all... Yeah. Yeah. We must be on the right path. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. Well, of course, his takeaway is that there's no meaning. He says, no. He goes, the gods of chance are playing dice. And so, um, you know, here I was having this incredibly powerful synchronicity with Nietzsche um, on New Year's Eve when he wrote this aphorism. And then the next page, he basically says, ha ha, fooled you. You know, you think this is meaningful, but it's not. Leave the gods, you know, and and embrace the god of chance because that's what's going on. And so, you know, I came away from that very powerfully. In, I mean, seriously, I don't know what it means. And so I think that that's the correct attitude. That's the attitude of religious studies. Yeah. These are powerful events, but can we conclude from them? Um, I don't know. Yeah. You know, so... Um, But I did want to say something about synchronicity, and it's this. It's that this is a a very specific example of how the new environment, the digital environment with which we find ourselves, increases a certain type of religiosity founded upon synchronicity because, you know, there are bots. Okay, so the bots provide to us those things that then that absolutely confirm our reality and they create what I call synthetic synchronicities. So I also included um, a person's synchronicity um, that occurred to him completely through bots, right? And um, 
and advertisements. And so, I mean, if you think about it, now that our digital environment with, within which we live is tailored to our own tastes, tailored to what we want to buy, tailored to what we are interested in, you know, it's all listening, you know, our computers are listening to us. So we can just talk about cereal and boom, cereal pops up. And, you know, a lot of us can then think that's a synchronicity, right? And so we are, you know, so synchronicities, in my opinion, are going to increase and they're going to be these kinds of digital synthetic synchronicities. Um, and not, no less powerful, right? No less powerful. But I think that they can illustrate what, you know, how we should, you know, what we should think about synchronicities. I'm not saying that they're not powerful. I'm just saying that, you know, this type of new environment is going to, you know, supercharge synchronicities for us. Well, I mean, what, the, what, it's, what it makes me think of is that in a way there's kind of two, two levels to a synchronicity where you have a, a specific one which is like you know you're you're reading Nietzsche and he, his thing is on New Year's and it's New Year's and he you, that's a synchronicity and then the next page he talks about synchronicities, so there's all of those loops that are themselves. Is this a message? Is it meaningful? Uh, it feels weird when you get it. It feels like someone's giving you a message. So that's one level. But the other level is like what could the mechanism possibly be that would produce this event? So there's like, there, it, it, it's part of the power of the synchronicity is the, the overt content, the message, so to speak, always refers to some invisible mechanism that you cannot, can't, you can't understand. And that's partly what gives it that sense of spookiness. And what's weird about the technology is it's the same thing. Even if you know that the bots are just following you around or they're listening to you, you know, you still people, when people tell these stories, they're like, well, you know, I, I don't have Alexa. You know, I was just talking to my friend on the phone and I was telling him about whatever, my toothache and whatever. And then the next thing I got this thing and like, what is it reading me? And so it becomes this question of like, how good is the, the actual mechanism that we know about rationally that has nothing supernatural about, but it still has this sort of animism to it there's still this sense that yes. it knows more yes. than we know or it's doing yeah. something more than it's supposed to be able to know yeah. so we can't escape that animistic kind of feeling even when we know that it is algorithmic yes and and that's such an excellent point i mean that's why i spend a lot of time on jacques valet's idea that the phenomena works like a technology like the, it's almost as if in retrospect, we can look at Jacques' ideas and confirm them. And we can say, yeah, it sure does. <laughs> you know, it sure does seem like it. You know, ab absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, and when, when you know, uh, Kripal wrote about him in a really great way. People who, all the people I know who are into this stuff, like they're more like the valet approach, you know, but I still don't, it doesn't really seem that outside of that particular kind of world that people quite recognize um, the significance of what he, he's done. And then we're not, we haven't even talked about the fact that he was at SRI and that he knew the remote viewers and he was also working on on what they call computer conferencing, basically, you know, laying the sort of so social conceptual groundwork for computer networking and it was all layered in this remarkable way and he, i mean it's just it's it's like all roads lead to jacques in a weird way it's true yeah i totally agree 
you know? Yeah. So, uh huh. I wrote a preface about Jacques. I put it on my website and, um, I love my editor, but she edited it down to like two pages. And I think it's like 10 pages or something where I basically talk about how he set up in the sixties and the seventies, you know, the way which I believe we should study this phenomena, this new type of religiosity and, um, and, and not discounting it, right. Not saying, not reducing it and saying, well, it's due to these forces, you know, and, and it's not real. Uh, he doesn't do that. He's not a reductionist, but he's a careful researcher. Yeah. So, you know, well, I, you know, I, this conversation is so great. We're, we're just going to do, we're going to do another hour and we'll, we'll run it next week because there's more stuff to talk about. But w- with the time left, I just wanted to, to another element about Jock that I, that kind of, I knew about, but I, it, it takes on more significance in, in one of the stories I tell in a high weirdness about Robert Anton Wilson. Basically, he plunges in the mid seventies, Robert Wilson into, you know, high, high weirdness all the time. And he's, you know, basically in a, in a kind of half psychotic, half visionary reality tunnel where he believes that aliens from Sirius are communicating with him and he's getting synchronicities all the time and taking too many drugs and it's all coming together. And one book encounter after another is weaving this whole completely bizarre worldview where he's he's in touch with these, you know, in, in, incarnate intelligences. And it's, it's basically going over, it's a little over uh, over the top. And what his story of how he kind of comes back to his kind of bemused maybe logic about all this stuff is precisely a meeting with with Jacques Vallée. That it was talking to Jacques Vallée and some of the, the, the way that Jacques communicated to him attitudes, appropriate attitudes towards this kind of phenomenon that helped sort of... Uh, heal him and let him leave what he called chapel chapel perilous but let's we're going to end it there for today dinah thanks so much for joining us but we're going to be back next week uh with another hour of conversation excellent thank you so much eric oh great so until next week tune in again uh keep your minds open awesome